Well, good morning again. You look good. I, you know, I tell you this sometimes. I probably don't tell you enough. But I really love you people. Uh, I had a youth pastor who changed my life in this church. The Lord used to change my life. And one of the things he was always so faithful to do was to say, you know, if nobody's told you today, I love you. And uh, in some ways it kind of became perfunctory. It's just something he would do, but it meant something to us. And to many of those students that didn't hear that a lot, it meant a lot. So I just want to tell you, if nobody's told you today, I love you. And I'm so grateful to be with you. And I also, if you know me very well, and many of you do know me pretty well, you know that I'm a hugger, right? I'm a hugger. Um, my wife is even more of a hugger than me. No kidding, the other day we were going to get our Christmas tree. <clears throat> we're at Home Depot. And I'm telling this story, she's not in here. She'd be mad at me probably. But uh, we're, we're at Home Depot, <laughs> and uh, we're going to get a Christmas tree. And we see my neighbor's son. Not even my neighbor, it's just my neighbor's son. And I, could, and I can read my wife, you know. I could feel her like rush ahead like, I'm going to give him a hug. And then she kind of stopped like, well, maybe not. Maybe I shouldn't. She's just a hugger, you know. And my, my daughter and I were both kind of like, I think you were, you were going for a hug, I think. No, I wasn't, you know. We're just hugging people. It's one of the ways that we like to show our affection for people. So for all of you who are not huggers, let this be the official apology. Right? And I think just the culture of our church has become a very affectionate people, and that's what was so weird over COVID, to not be able to hug people and to not be able to shake hands and stuff, because there's something powerful about touch in there. Some of you are going, yeah, for some people, don't, it doesn't have to be you, right? But there's something powerful about touch. In fact, I started looking around this week, and I noticed I was reading an article in the New Yorker. This is what it says. Touch is the first of the senses to develop in the human infant. And it remains perhaps the most emotionally central throughout our lives. The right kind of touch can lower blood pressure, heart rate, cortisol levels, stimulate the hippocampus, which is an area of the brain that is central to memory, and drive the release of a host of hormones and neuropeptides that have been linked to positive and uplifting emotions. The physical effects of touch are far-reaching. Another article from The Guardian says, the tender touch of others is now known to boost the immune system, lower blood pressure, decrease levels of stress hormones such as cortisol, and trigger the release of the same kind of opiates as pain-killing drugs. Premature babies gain weight when rubbed lightly from the head to foot. And massages uh, reduce pain in pregnant women. And people with dementia who are hugged are less prone to irritability and depression. So now I have scientific proof for hugging you. So when I come and hug you, it's just for your good. Just know that, all right? That's my excuse. I'm, I'm being a little bit silly. But what's so cool about the story we're going to get into today is that we see the powerful touch of Jesus. It changes people's lives. And if you know him, if his touch has touched your life or your heart or your family, then it's changed you. And I, I want us to look at that today because there's something absolutely beautiful and caring about our text today. There's no doubt that touch, physical contact can be a blessing and we see Jesus even use it 
in our story this morning. So as you're getting your Bibles out and you're turning to Mark chapter 5, I want to just kind of give us some context. Last Sunday we were in our city groups around the city, and we continue through teaching in our series. And you might remember that we talked uh, about the demoniac is kind of the way we refer to him in the church a lot of times. This guy, Jesus had been in, in the storm, remember, with the disciples and had been crazy. And Jesus speaks peace to the storm at night, right? They're, fe- they're fearful for their lives. They think they're going to drown and die in this storm. Jesus says, peace be still, the storm drops. And when they reach the other side of the Sea of Galilee or the lake that we talked about, uh, which is about six or seven miles from Capernaum to the uh, Uh, land of the Gerizines, which is where they end up, where the demoniac is, there's this man there, and he is possessed with a legion of demons, which we studied last Sunday could mean, I mean, the Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers, so it could have been 6,000 demons. We know at least 2,000 pigs, when Jesus cast the demons out of the man, at least 2,000 pigs run into the water and die, right? And so what happens in the town with all the farmers? If you're a farmer and you've got 2,000 pigs, are you going to be happy with Jesus? <laughs> your whole investment, your whole retirement plan just ran off the side of the hill into the water. And so what we see is uh, that people are frustrated with Jesus. The town people come out, and what's sad is they're so selfish and, and worried about their, their pigs and their investment, they don't see what has happened in the life of this crazy man. This crazy man who lives in the graves. He's changed. He's in his right mind. He's finally got some clothes on. And what do they do? The townspeople say, go away. What an interesting turn of events for Jesus to be shown the door. Thank thank you. You can leave now to what we're going to see today. Because they get back in the boat and go back six or seven miles across the Sea of Galilee, right back to Capernaum to a group of people with open arms going, come here, we want you here. And that's what we walk into this morning in in Mark chapter five, verse 21. If you have your Bibles, look with me. We're gonna break our text up into three different sections, okay? And the first one is about a desperate father. It says in Mark 5, 21, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. Big difference than saying, leave our town, right? The, all of a sudden, they're right there at the shore. He was beside the sea. Hadn't even hardly got out of the boat, and they're ready for him to come on, on shore. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. Pray with me this morning. Father, Lord, we take a look at your word and we, we pray, God, that you'd help us to just take this into our hearts and spirits and that you would help us to apply this reality, Lord, that you are a caring and loving and present Savior and that you want to do a work in our hearts and in our lives. You want to change us, Lord, and you want to meet our needs. So, God, help us to see that you are such a loving and caring friend, and that your touch changes everything. God, I pray that this morning you would help us to study your word and that you would lead us by your spirit to all truth. 
Help us to understand it. I pray, God, that as we study it, you would increase in this time that I would decrease. You would receive all glory from what we learn. Give us the courage to be obedient to your word. And the faith, Lord, if we would only believe, we'll see amazing things. Give us faith to trust you in the areas of our lives that we need you so desperately. In Jesus' name, amen. You know that I'm a father. Um, to they're my two little girls. They will always be my two little girls. I can't believe my oldest is turning 16 in a month. I can't believe that. Pray for me as we enter the driving, the driving thing. I also have a 12-year-old. My girls are precious to me. In fact, I, I struggle, and I tell the Lord all the time, Lord, forgive me when I place them above you, because at times I do. Forgive me, Lord, if I hold on too tightly to them because I love them sometimes more than I love you, and I'm sorry. I don't want to. I want to love you more, and I want to give them to you. I want to trust you with my kids, but oh, how I love my girls. They're everything to me. And if one of them was sick, if one of them was dying, I would be like Jairus, right? What an interesting story of this man who is a leader in Capernaum at the synagogue. He's probably wealthy. He's very, has a lot of influence. Jesus pulls up on the shore and all of a sudden the crowd around Jesus begins to divide, right? What's going on? Well, one of the leaders of the synagogue is making his way a beeline directly to Jesus, right? Now, Jesus had had some run-ins with the leaders, right? Pharisees, leaders of the synagogue, and it's not been a good thing. He's kind of called them out. He's kind of uh, scolded them at times. And typically, a leader in the Jewish faith is not somebody that wants to be seen with Jesus. We're told in John 3 that Nicodemus, who is one of the Pharisees, comes to Jesus when? At night. Why? Because he's ashamed. He's fearful. He doesn't want to be seen with Jesus, but he wants some answers. So at least he makes the risk to go be with Jesus even at night. That's a little bit different than what we see here in Jairus' life, isn't it? Jairus says, I don't care. I, I, I'm done worried about anybody, what anybody else thinks. My baby girl is dying, and I'm making a beeline to the healer because I've seen him heal. I've seen him heal. I saw him touch a leper. Right? I heard about this. I, I've seen him touch the, the, the man that was in Peter's mother-in-law's home who was crippled. I've known this man. He's crippled. And he got up and took his mat and went home. I've seen it with my own eyes. This man can heal people and he can heal my daughter. And nothing is more important to me than seeing my daughter live. And so he falls down at Jesus' feet. Now what's interesting is, you know, in the Synoptic Gospels we have these stories retold. And sometimes we have a little bit more information in these stories, right? Well, the Bible tells us in Matthew's uh, version of this, of this story in chapter 9, that the man falls down in such a way, and the Greek word here is, is uh, usually translated for worship in the sense of prostrate on, on his face. So it's not kind of like the guy comes up and goes, uh, hey, master, can we? No, this guy falls on his face in worship before Jesus. A man of prominence, a man of wealth, a man of influence, unafraid of what anybody thinks, only wants to see his baby girl live, falls on his face in worship 
as if to say, I believe in this man. I believe. I've watched him heal. I believe. And so I lay my life down before him in faith. And Jesus pays attention to him. And the man says, will you please come with me to my home? My daughter's dying. And lay hands on her. Touch her. She needs your healing touch for her life. So Jairus in this moment is thankful because Jesus begins to go with him. And all of a sudden we see, which is, we see this two or three times in this story this morning, we see an interruption. There's an interruption. Jesus is interrupted from going with Jairus back to his home. Let's look in our text in verse 24, interrupted by a desperate woman. It says, and he, and he went with him. He was on his way. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. That means they were touching him. They were all around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better and rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she uh, was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said, Lord, you see, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told, the whole, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So just as Jairus' is hopeful, Jesus is now making a turn from the crowd and we're going to Jairus' house and they're on their way, they're walking. Jesus just stops dead in his tracks. Gets this weird look on his face, and everybody's kind of like, What's up, right? Verse 36 Jesus, perceiving that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? He's interrupted from the mission of going and helping Jairus' daughter. Crowds are pressing around him. People are touching him. Thronged means that you can hardly get through it. Ugh, I hate those situations. Right? I just do. I'm sort of introverted in many ways, and I let, that's kind of my nightmare in some ways. I'm like, oh, don't touch me. And so all these people are around him, and he just stops. Who touched me? So I was like, what are you talking about who touched you? We're all touching you. Everybody. Jesus felt power go out from his body. Disciples are confused, but Jesus is not surprised. He knows, exactly, he knows exactly who's touched him, right? I mean, he knows these things. And so what's he doing as he waits, as he stops? He's waiting on her response. He's waiting on her. Now, as we go through the text this morning, what I want to do is I want to show us in the middle of, the, of our story some things we can learn about God, okay? And here's the first thing I, I've noticed that when we pray and we ask God to do something in our lives and he moves on our behalf, maybe there's a miracle, maybe there's a provision, God does something in our hearts, that is not an impersonal reality. He knows. 
He's moving through the crowd. I mean, I guess Jesus could have just gone, huh, somebody just got healed there. Let's keep going. Oh, there's somebody. I'm, I don't know. I don't know the specifics of it. I'm sure there were other people who needed healing that were touching him as well. Did they not have faith? I, I don't know the, how, the mechanics of how it worked. But I do know that Jesus knew that healing took place and he wanted to stop. It wasn't just about the healing. It was also about the person. It was also about the story. It was also about what he wanted to do in her life besides heal her, right? It's because he's so caring. If there's something that I've been so blessed by this text this week is that Jesus is so caring. So caring as we look at this story, as we think about what his last day has been like. And here he's being thronged and pushed about and he's so caring. He stops in his tracks and he looks around to see who had done it. Verse 33, but the woman knowing what had happened to her. See, she knew as soon as she touched his garment, she felt in her body, she's healed. And I believe something happened in this moment besides healing. I, I believe something happens besides healing because it says that she, she comes in and she feels this miracle happen in her body and then all of a sudden, look what it says. She, she comes in fear and trembling and she, like Jairus, falls down before him watch this, and tells him the whole truth. Isn't that an interesting phrase? I've never noticed this in this story. Oh, you know, the woman with the issue of blood, she touches his garment and gets healed. That's kind of, you know, I remember that much. But as I got into this and I started looking, there's really a different presentation of this woman's motives here. Where Jairus has been the man who has been uh, influential and the town knows him and he has money and wealth and yet he has no problem laying prostrate before Jesus and saying help me. Here's a woman who has zero credibility. She's ostracized, right? And she sneaks up behind, the text says, Jesus. Jairus comes in front. Everything's open. She comes with a different motive. The text says that she's heard that Jesus can heal, right? I, I'm sick. I just need, it's kind of selfish. I'm sick. I've had a 12 years of this mess. I'm done with it. I've heard this guy can heal. Let me just go see him. Maybe if I can just, no, no, I'm not supposed to be here in the first place. If I can just, right? But then something happens. She's healed. And in the moment of her actually being healed and feeling healing in her body, not only is she healed, she watches Jesus, and Jesus stops and knows power has left his body. I think in that moment she had to make a decision. Who in the world is this person? Who is this? Just like we talked about the other day. That when we come in the presence of a holy God, we too will fall down. We too will tremble. The Bible says one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. It's right for sinful people to be on their face before a holy God. And she recognized she was in the presence of the Messiah. So she falls down and she tells him the whole truth. Now what's interesting is the story tells us this woman has been dealing with this for 12 years. She's been going to doctors for 12 years. And in 12 years, those doctors have been taking advantage of her. So what I want, I think Mark is trying to show us here through Peter's uh, eyewitness testimony is a little bit more about this woman. It's not just that she's sick and has the issue of blood. 
she's also poor. She, she has no more money. So she's sick. She has nothing. She's poor. She has an issue of blood, which means it is unlawful for her to be near people, especially a rabbi. It's unlawful for her to come into such a gathering. She's breaking the law. She's being inappropriate. She's sneaking up behind Jesus, and she's being selfish for the only thing she wants is just some healing from a healer. But she finds something else, doesn't she? She doesn't just find healing for her sickness. She finds forgiveness for her sins. And all of a sudden, her healing becomes secondary to her salvation. What she found out is that what's impossible with man and those doctors is possible with God. There may be something that's going on in your life and you've tried every route, every angle, every doctor, every scheme, every business opportunity, everything you can think of. And can I just tell you, what's impossible with man is possible with God. If we believe. That's what she finds out in this moment. So now she's met the great physician. She's before him. She's trembling in fear. And the reality of who this is that knows that she's been healed. Just he and her. Right? Think about that moment. This is not like the man who gets up who hasn't been walking. This is a private thing. She alone knows she's healed. He alone knows she's healed. In a sea of people, they're sharing this beautiful secret of healing. Here's something we need to learn about God is that he responds to humility. You notice what both of these people do? They both come to Jesus. They both fall before Jesus. See, before this moment, she comes covertly in secret, in violation of the law, she has all these social issues about her. She struggled for 12 years in isolation, which means she's not been able to go to the temple or to synagogue. She's not supposed to be around people. That puts her in the same category of, of leper. So when Jesus heals her and she feels his healing touch when she touches his garment, she's been lonely, she's probably not married because of this issue. She probably has no children because of this issue. And all of a sudden, she shares a moment with the great physician that she hasn't ever felt. And it's not just the healing, it is her salvation. We know this because Jesus uses a phrase, and Mark translates this in Greek, and he uses this Greek word, sozo, which I think is just kind of a cool word anyway. Sozo, it means Faith, so when Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you, what it means, though, it's a type of faith. It's a saving faith. It's a faith of salvation. So when Jesus says, daughter, your saving faith has healed you, he's talking about more than healing. He's talking about healing of sin, healing of life, right? Healing of all of her brokenness. He's changed her life. So she leaves, and Jesus tells her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Right? This is not just about her physical healing. This is about the healing of her heart. Jesus saves her. Here's something else I think we can learn. That this is the way Jesus saves people. 
When we come to God, we need to understand. We need to see him for the holy God that he is. That's who he is. We need to understand he requires perfection. And when we look at ourselves, we are far from it. No one is perfect but Jesus. All of us are sinful, broken, fallen people. And when we see a holy God against our brokenness and our sinfulness, I hope it leads us to a place of confession, repentance. Lord, save me. I am undone, Isaiah says. And you this morning, apart from a relationship with Jesus, can I just tell you truthfully, you're undone. You're undone. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you don't recognize him as the holy God that he is and yourself as the sinful person in need of his forgiveness, may God have mercy on your soul today and by his grace and goodness save you because you recognize his holiness, your fallenness, and the grace of Jesus shed on a cross for you and for me. God saves people who recognize their own sin, and his holiness. They humble themselves in confession before him. So Mark is giving us this story of these two very different people, right? Both of them come in desperation, one a desperate father, another a desperate woman. And yet Jesus meets them right where they are. And I like the way that uh, John MacArthur puts it in their differences. He says, one was a man, the other a woman, one wealthy, one poor, one respected, one rejected, one honored, one ashamed, one leading the synagogue, the other excommunicated from the synagogue, one a 12-year-old girl, we're going to see in just a minute, and the other with a 12-year-old malady. All these differences, and the, the differences don't matter. Differences don't matter to God. He's Lord of all. <laughs> so here we see another interruption. Jesus First of all, uh, Jairus is interrupted from going and seeing the healing and, and resurrection of his daughter, healing of his daughter. And then now Jesus is interrupted. He's speaking to the woman. And all of a sudden, somebody comes up and interrupts Jesus. Look with me in verse 35. While he was still speaking, he's talking to this woman, and somebody comes and interrupts Jesus. He's still speaking. There came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? child is not dead, but sleeping. <laughs> I love this. I, I, in my mind, I'm so narrative and visual. In my mind, this is all playing out in such a cool way, in dramatic way. First of all, I think about this father's heart, Jairus. Full of hope, because Jesus has turned his direction. Jesus has acknowledged him and said, okay, let's go. Right? <gasps> okay. You're coming to heal my child. Let's go. And stops. What, wait, what? He's interrupted by this woman, right? And then in the interruption, the woman gets her healing. Jairus waiting patiently. Okay, okay. 
Jesus, it's this way. Okay, we can go now, right? And he gets another interruption, and it's somebody from Jairus' house. And they come to the house. They come from the house, and they, and they meet Jesus. And they say, whoa, 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 don't mess with the, the teacher anymore. She's dead. These cold words cut through the air into this loving father's heart who's placed himself prostrate on the ground before the master. She's dead. It's no use. Don't worry about it anymore. Forget it. It's over, right? I just I think about that father's heart dropping, full of fear, full of sadness, hopelessness because she's gone. Even those who bring the news say, don't worry about it. Why? They'd seen Jesus do all these things before, but they had never seen him raise somebody from the dead. It's outside their purview. It's outside their experience. They'd never understood that Jesus, creator of those same bodies, can not only heal them when they're alive, he can raise them from the dead. And he does it several times. But he had never done it up to this point. (laughs) I love this moment. These people cut through the air with Leave the teacher alone. She's dead. And Jesus says, overhearing what they say, I I just believe this with all my heart, he stops and he gets Jairus' attention. Look me in the eye, Jairus. Look at me. Look at me. Right? What does he say? Don't fear. Only believe. Don't fear. Don't listen to them. Only believe. What's so cool about this moment is Mark actually leaves out five pretty important words from the story. Because later in Luke, another gospel sharing this story, Luke adds some five words that I think are pretty important to this story. Let's look at it. Luke 8, 49. While he's still speaking, from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing him, answered him. Do not fear, only believe. And then he adds five more words. What does he say? And she will be well. Those words matter, don't they? (laughs) Don't fear, only believe, and she'll be made well. Here's the point. Jesus speaks directly to what that father needed to hear in that moment. See that? So loving, so caring. Pay attention to me. Look at me. Don't listen to them. Look at me, Jairus. Don't fear, only believe, and she'll be made well. And they continue on to his house, right? Now, Jesus grabs his triad. And I use the word triad because they're important to me. At South City, we have triads. Triads are a group of two to three people that are in your life that you as a believer in Jesus who want to, you want to be a disciple and you want to make disciples, you're intentional about that. And so you say, hey, I want to grab two or three, if you're a woman, two or three women, or man, I want to grab two or three men, and I want to walk with you every week, and I want to study God's word, and I want to pray for each other, and I want to hold each other accountable to the mission of Jesus together. So we have these in our church, and if you're not a part of one, get in one. They're amazing. It's, it's who we ought to be. Jesus had a triad. He invested most deeply in Peter, James, and John. And, and there's some cool moments in Jesus' life where he invites them into some experiences that only Peter, James, and John get. This is one of those moments. He says, Peter, James, John, right? He calls them out from the group. And they're like, yeah, come with me. Oh, they, get a, they get the special treatment. 
And they go with Jesus to the house, right? Now, there's some other times where Peter, James, and John are invited into special experiences. Uh, one is when Jesus uh, is, uh, is glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? He shows them his glory. Incredible moment. Um, the other is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He shows them his struggle. But this is the first one. And he's going to show them something that no one's ever seen, and that's the fact that he is over. He has authority over a lot of things we've talked about. And now they're about to see Jesus has authority over what? Death itself, right? So they get to the house, and it's a noisy mess. People are wailing and crying. And what's interesting is in the Jewish culture, by law, when someone dies in your home, you have to hire professional wailers, professional mourners. And depending on how much money you make, the more mourners you have to get. So if you're poor, you still got to get at least one mourner to weep and cry. They may not know you, but they're going to fake it really well. And they're going to, oh, they're going to make a noise and they're going to cry and they're going to make a, a, a fit around your home. It's going to provide an atmosphere of death and, and sadness, right? So they get to Jairus' home, who is wealthy, which means he has many mourners. He didn't even know his daughter's dead. And he gets back home, and it's just a concophony of chaos, of sadness, an atmosphere of death. And people are mourning and crying and weeping. Why? Because they're probably about to get paid. They may not even know this girl. They may not even know Jairus, and they're weeping and mourning. Jesus walks up in the house, and he says, what's all this commotion and sadness? She's just sleeping. The girl's just sleeping. Hush. Isn't that interesting? Why does Jesus say that she's only sleeping? It's because to Jesus, death is only temporary. It's the same phrase that he uses in, in John 11 with Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? He tells the disciples, hey, Lazarus has fallen asleep. He says the same thing. In fact, later on, New Testament writers use the same sort of description when they're talking about death, right? Paul says that when, when someone has, this is concerning when someone has fallen asleep. Why does he use sleep instead of death? Because when you are in Christ, it's only temporary. Christian, that ought to make your heart explode. When you're in Christ, death is only temporary. It's only sleep. Jesus knew in just a little bit She's going to be awake, and you may die today, but guess what? If you're in Christ, in just a little bit, you're going to be awake. And with Jesus, nothing can keep you from the love of Christ, not even death itself. She's just asleep. She's just asleep. Why are you wailing? You don't even probably know this girl. Something I think is so interesting in this moment, I want to... Read our text in verse 40 as we finish. Look what the mourners, all of a sudden, their uh, lack of authenticity shows through here in verse 40. And they laughed at him. The mourners begin to laugh at the Messiah. What does he do with them when they begin to laugh at him? Watch this. But he put them all outside. <laughs> and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. 
And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now I want to finish this up. And as we finish this last little bit of this amazing story, what, is, what, is some things, what are some things that God wants to show us? Number one, when you're walking through some moments of desperation, like desperate father or the desperate woman or the lifeless child, when you are desperate in that moment, God wants to remind you not to fear, only believe. When I read that this week, man, it just it hit me. Because there's some things in my life right now I'm afraid of. There's some things, even this weekend, that I sat there going, Lord, is this text for me only? So you say to Drew today, don't fear, only believe. Don't fear, only believe. You may be walking through something. It may be a health issue for you. It may be a marriage issue for you. It may be a, a financial issue for you or all the above. Don't fear, only believe. God wants to speak directly to your heart as he did, Jairus, exactly what you need. Exactly what you need. He wants to get your attention this morning. He wants to take your face. Look at me. Don't fear. Only believe. Another thing is this. In God's eyes, death is temporary. You know, some of you are at an age where you're really beginning to consider this word death. All of us ought to be considering it because none of us know the day or the hour. Some of you have experienced death in a family member. It's something that none of us want to talk about and we sure don't want to deal with. But the good news is that God sees it as temporary if you know Jesus. And we just fall asleep until he wakes us up in his arms because Jesus, the Bible says, holds the keys to death, right? He holds the keys to death, and in this story, he holds the words of life. And look what he does. He does something that is incredible in this moment. I want to remind you of what he says to Martha in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So if you believe in Jesus, you never die. You might fall asleep for a moment. That just gives me hope. <laughs> that just gives me joy. One of the major lessons that I think that I learned in this text this week was this next one, and that's this. When we're walking through difficulty, we need to be careful to do what Jesus did in this moment. You see, he walked up into the house and the noise and the, the mourners, and he says, be quiet. She's only asleep. And then what does he do with them? He puts them out, right? Interesting to me. Could Jesus have healed the girl with the people in there? Yeah, I'm sure he could have. But there's, there's meaning here for us. And what I, I think God wants to show us is that in our lives, you need to take the people who don't believe, the people who are mocking, the people who don't have faith, the people who create an atmosphere of distrust and a lack of faith, you need to put them out of your life. Put them out of your home and replace them with people who do have faith. Jesus brought the powerful three, right? 
They're just ordinary people who are with Jesus more than anybody else. Peter, James, and John. He brings them into the room. They had seen him do more than anybody else. Do miracles more than anybody else. They had seen him heal hearts and save people and do the miraculous on a boat to a demoniac. And he brings these people who have faith and experience with Jesus in that room. He also brings the girl's parents. Can Tell me this. Who in the world would, would ha- want to have more hope for that girl's life than those two people? Who in the world would have more, more hope? Hope, I'm praying in hope. I'm praying in faith than mom and dad of that little girl. He removes this atmosphere of a lack of faith, an atmosphere of laughter and mocking, and replaces it with an atmosphere of believers who are full of hope and full of faith and ready to see Jesus do what he wants to do in her life. He does the unthinkable in this culture. He grabs the hand of a corpse. That's a big no-no, right? She's just asleep, though. So he grabs this little girl's hand, and he says, Talitha kumi, which means little one or little child, but it's also translated little lamb, which I think is beautiful. Very fatherly. Come on, little one. Come on, little girl. Come on, little lamb. He says, rise. And what I love about this moment, (laughs) it's not unlike Jesus on a rocky wave when he just says, peace, and the waves drop in the instant. In the same way, Jesus says, little one, rise. And the Bible doesn't say that she goes, Right Or her eyes begin to blink or there begins to be signs of life. What does it say happens? She begins to get up and walk. And for some reason, Mark goes, oh, and she's 12. You probably need to know she's 12. I don't know. She, she's youthful. She's young. She gets up and begins to walk around. And the parents and the disciples are stunned with utter amazement. That's the only way Mark can describe speechlessness. They are undone. They've seen something they've never seen before. Someone go from death to life. And it blows their minds. They can't even understand it. And they're speechless as this little girl's walking all around the room. And then there's one last thing I think that's so cool about what Mark shows us about Jesus. What does he say about the little girl? As soon as, soon as she gets up walking around, Jesus says, hey, you need to feed her something. She's hungry. She has maybe been sick for days, weeks, months. She might not have eaten in a long time. Now she's perfectly whole, perfectly well, and Jesus is so caring for her that he says, hey, this little one, this little lamb, this little, she needs to eat, get her something to eat. What I see is a loving, caring Savior. From the shoreline to the little girl's bedroom, he cares for us. Even for when we're hungry, he cares for us. He tells them not to tell anyone. He's done this before. He tells them don't tell anyone because the bottom line is this story really can't be told fully until I'm on a cross. And I show that life from death, (laughs) you don't have to experience death anymore because of what I do on a cross. I I don't want to have to walk through Capernaum and somebody go, hey, come with me to the graveyard you're the healer, now you're the, the, the lifter of, of dead people, come with me. No, I, I want this to be about salvation and the gospel. 
I want people to see me for what I am, the Messiah that brings life to the death of all of your life, your spiritual life, your physical life, all that you are. I want to close. This shows how loving and caring and tender Jesus is. Daniel Aiken says, God honors the faith of all who come to him through Jesus. Social status doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. Any other distinction does not matter. God cares for the demon-possessed, the man of distinction, the outcast woman, the little lifeless girl who is powerless. God truly loves the world of people without distinction. So what do we, what do we take away? Give me 60 more seconds here. What do we take away? We take away the fact that when we come to Jesus in humility and faith, he can meet our need, even our greatest need of salvation. But we have to come in humility. And if you're walking through something this morning, don't fear. That's what he spoke to me in my heart today, this week. Don't fear, just believe. Even this is exactly what you need to hear. <laughs> what Jairus needed to hear was, she will be made well. Don't fear, only believe. Whatever's going on in your life, I'm in control of it. That's what Jesus speaks directly to your heart. Don't fear, only believe, I'll meet that need. Don't fear, only believe, I can heal that marriage. Don't fear, only believe, I can meet that job situation. Whatever it is, don't fear, only believe. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And remove the doubters from your life. Replace them with faithful believers who hope for God's best in your life. The atmosphere you walk your life in matters. Build it with a group of people who have, a, who have faith, who have trust in Jesus, who have experienced his goodness. That's what our city groups are. That's what our triads are. That's what our church is. Not just a gathering where we do a service. This is a family where we walk life together. That's why those smaller groups are so important. Because it's not about the service we perform. It's about the family that we're living out together. Atmosphere matters. I, I want to close with this last phrase. We've said it, we sang it in a song about Jesus being Emmanuel. And I love that word. The Bible tells us it means God with us. And is there not a more appropriate story for Jesus walking on that shoreline? Being crowded with all these people, sick and broken and whatever. He was so present. Tired, exhausted, but he was present. He was with them. I hear you, I hear you, I felt that power. Yeah, let's go to your home. I mean, he, feed the little girl. So much presence with Jesus because he cares for us in the same way it's a Christmas season. Can I just tell you, God is present with you. He's with you right now. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? We're gonna close can I just remind you that he's the same God today that he was in that moment? Present with you, present with me, caring for every single one of your needs. What is the need of your life? Right now, as your eyes are closed, think about this. What is the need of your life? Do you need a healer? Do you need a hope giver? Do you need a life giver? Do you need a savior? Do you see him as holy and yourself as broken and sinful? Approach him in that same humility in fear and trembling and say, Lord, I believe. 
Save me, change me, help me. What area of your life does Jesus need to touch today? Because there's not a more powerful touch in all the world. Do not fear, only believe. Father, we love you. I'm so grateful for your word. I'm so grateful, Father, for the opportunity to share it today and to learn it and to study it and to think through this. Just this small little picture of who you are, not who you were, who you are in the life of those people all around you, wanting to meet their needs, wanting to save their souls, wanting to heal their bodies, wanting to care for hunger needs and and life needs and raise this child to life. Lord, in every case, you are giving and loving and kind. And many of us right now need that kindness, Lord. Many of us right now need you to come through in a way, Lord, that we can't even explain or may not even understand fully. But that's exactly who you are and it's exactly what you do. You make a way where there is no way. You bring hope and life and goodness to our lives. And the enemy would cause us to fear, distract us and interrupt us. Oh, but God, you take our face and you say, look at me. Don't fear, only believe. Believe I can meet that need. Believe that I'm present with you in this moment. Believe that I'm real. Believe that I am with you. Believe that I'm bigger than anything you face. God, would you give us that faith? Just as you told the woman, your faith, your saving faith has healed you, go in peace. Lord, I pray that today we can leave this place in the peace of Jesus because of a saving faith we have in you, because of the hope that we have in you, Lord. So as we take this time and we sing to you, Father God, would you minister to our hearts? If, if we need to come to this altar and just do exactly what the desperate father and the desperate woman did, which is come prostrate before you and kneel before others and, and show that we're unashamed to ask this request to meet our need, to help us, Lord, if we need to do that in this altar, may we do it faithfully now. May we do it where we sit. May we do it even if we're watching from home, Lord. May you move in our hearts and our lives because you want to powerfully touch every area of our life. It's just who you are. You're good. And we glorify you, Lord, and we thank you for that goodness and love. Move, Spirit of the living God. Help us to have faith to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.